I want to begin tonight, as I said, I want to begin with uh, kind of an overview about the book of Philippians. And um, I just think it's so important that before you begin to look into Scripture, especially if you begin to do a deep dive into Scripture, that you understand what the foundation of that Scripture is. And tonight, that's, what, that's all that this is about. Tonight, we're, we're giving you a lot of background information about Philippians, who wrote it, who read it, all these kind of things. And I want to give you the historical context of it so that you can understand it a little bit better. Uh, hopefully I can do a good job of doing that. But tonight what we're going to do is we're going to begin in uh, Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to read the, verse, the first two verses. And um, basically what we're going to do for the rest of the series is we're not exactly going to go verse by verse through all four chapters, but it's going to be pretty close. We're going we're gonna to tackle it um, pretty deep and wide. Uh, here in this next semester. Uh, but if you have your notes or if uh, you want to look on the screen here, let's read together in Philippians chapter 1. Um, this is what the great apostle writes. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, tonight as we do open your word, my prayer is that the anointing of the Holy Spirit will be upon us, that you will give us ears to hear what the Spirit of God is saying, uh, not just regarding the book of Philippians, but to us as individuals. I want to pray for a strong unction to come upon us and to help us tonight, Lord. So please bless the reading and the preaching of your word and uh, your people tonight, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we are tremendously blessed to live in the Western culture that we live. We have incredible um, delicacies and luxuries that, you know, 90% of the world just does not have. And uh, we all have certain things that, that we love, uh, certain things that we kind of uh, drift towards. And one of those for me is a nice, long, hot shower. Um, I love a nice, long, hot shower. The problem is, is that when you have 67 children like I do, um, you've got to conserve hot water uh, so everybody can get a shower, but they don't always think of that concerning you. But anyway, um, we're currently uh, living in an apartment, and uh, which is nice for me liking long showers because... Um, uh, the price that you pay for a long shower in an apartment complex is kind of tied with everybody else. So you don't, you know, run up the water bill or anything. So over the past few months, I've been taking ridiculously long showers and enjoyed every second of it. Um, a few weeks ago, I was uh, taking a shower and uh, I was enjoying all the goodness of the shower, the steam and the smell of soap and the hot water and all of this kind of stuff. And um, all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I, I kind of looked up to my right, and I saw an enormous spider just dangling there, just dangling in the shower. Well, I wasn't close enough. I wasn't in any danger. The, the spider, you know, I, it probably wasn't even poisonous, but it definitely could not reach me unless it was a leaping spider, I guess. Um, but it was far enough away. Uh, I thought, you know what, I'm not even going to worry about it, you know, whatever. And so I continued with my shower. But what I noticed as I was trying to enjoy the moment is that as I would try to begin to think about my day and what everything would entail, my to-do list and all that kind of stuff, 
I began to have my eyes wander back up to that spot in the upper right-hand corner of the shower, and it was the spider. And no matter how hard I tried, I thought, nope, don't worry about it. He's out of range. You're not going to kill him right now. Just don't, don't think about that. Don't focus on that. Focus on the goodness of the shower. Look at the steam. It feels so good. You're so relaxed. I tried to focus on all of that stuff. But no matter how hard I tried, my eyes kept diverting back to the spider. And it was super frustrating. So I got to the point where I was like, I don't need a hot shower, I guess. So I shut off the water. I got out. I forgot to kill the spider. I don't know what happened to him. He's probably under my bed somewhere. But the point is is that no matter what I did in, in that moment, it was super frustrating to me that, that I kept giving my attention back to the spider. Out of all the goodness that was going on around, I kept going to the one thing that was frustrating to me. And as we begin to look at the book of Philippians, um, can I tell you that is so much what Philippians is about? It's the idea of Paul asking his readers in Philippi, what are you going to give your attention to? Are you going to focus on the suffering or are you going to focus on the glory? Are you going to focus on the frustrations that life brings or are you going to focus on the good that life brings? Are you going to focus on your privileges that you have or are you going to focus on sacrificing yourself for the betterment of other people? Which of these things are you going to focus on? And it's in some ways an incredibly convicting book, but in other ways an incredibly encouraging book. And so as we begin to unpack uh, this theme that's kind of, you know, thread all throughout the book, um, tonight what I want to do is I want to pose a series of questions and then give you the answers to them. So for instance, tonight, when we begin, we'll talk about who is writing the letter, who's reading the letter, where is it going, and all this kind of stuff. We'll get into all that. But before we do that, I want to I kind of tee us up a little bit so that we have a better understanding of the historical context of really what's going on. And so what I want to do is talk to you a little bit about who Paul is and how he got to the point of writing this letter to the church at Philippi. And we're going to talk about all of that before we actually talk about what was written at Philippi. Does that make sense? Because until you understand what led up to the letter, the letter can only make so much sense. But when you understand everything behind it, then all of a sudden some things come to light. And so um, I want to talk to you about Paul. I want to talk to you about his journey just a little bit. Uh, we're, most of us are pretty familiar with Paul. Uh, many people would um, consider Paul the greatest Christian who ever lived. Um, we know that Paul was a Jew. We know that he had a Roman citizenship, but uh, Paul was a very zealous Jew. He was devout. He loved God with all of his heart. He feared the Lord. But his devout devotion to Judaism conflicted when Christianity came about. And so then Paul set out, we know he set out to kind of dismantle uh, the Christian movement. And so he began to persecute those who were Christians. We know the story of Paul's conversion, right? Paul was converted on the road to Damascus. Paul was sent out on a mission to uh, bring destruction to some Christians. And the Lord Jesus himself encounters Paul. He knocks Paul off of his horse and speaks to Paul. Um, we know the story. And so after Paul is born again, after the Spirit of God you know, resurrects his dead spirit, 
Paul kind of escapes. He goes away for a number of years. He goes away to Arabia. Uh, he writes to the Galatians, and he just kind of disappears. He spends time in the presence of God. He spends time in the scriptures. He spends time with um, other spiritual leaders who were Christians or you know, converted from Judaism to Christianity. He is spending this time learning. He's in the dark. Nobody sees him. Nobody knows what's happened to him. But all of this time, God is developing Paul, who Paul is going to be, what Paul is going to do. He's developing all of that in a very silent time of Paul's life. And so Paul, at a certain point, he comes back on the scene. Paul shows up and he basically has to convince all of the, the existing Christians that he's not there as a spy who is going to infiltrate and then kill them all. Um, he has to convince them that he really is a follower of Jesus now. And so Paul shows up and he begins to do the work of a missionary. He goes and uh, the Bible kind of unfolds for us throughout uh, the book of Acts and others that Paul takes three different trips around different nations uh, in, in uh, Asia Minor, in Europe, different things like that. They're called the three missionary journeys of Paul. And so Paul may begin somewhere and he'll do, you know, a few years and a trip and he'll come back home and then he'll begin again. Uh, he kind of has this rhythm in his life. Well, on the second journey that Paul is taking around where he's just planting churches, he's preaching the gospel, people are converted, doing miracles, signs and wonders, all kind of things like this. On a second missionary journey, Paul is, uh, he has kind of got his sight set on going one direction. He's going to a certain province. He, he's going to preach the gospel. He has a strategic plan of how this is all going to unfold. But then in the night, Paul receives a vision. And in this vision, there's a man, he's called the man from Macedonia. And in this vision, the man asks Paul, he says, Paul, please don't go there. We desperately need your help in Macedonia. Paul, believing that the Spirit of God was behind this vision, Paul stops in his tracks and he redirects and he goes to this place called Macedonia. Well, as he's in Macedonia, um, which is uh, very close to Philippi, which is where the letter to Philippians was written to, Paul begins to um, look for this man, this Macedonian man. I saw this man in a vision. I have to find this man. But what Paul ends up finding is not a man, but a woman named Lydia, um, one of the most precious um, characters in all of Scripture. And so as we find Paul approaching Philippi, you can read all of the events that transpire at Philippi in Paul's life in the book of Acts chapter 16. You're going you're gonna to hear about Paul and his interactions with Lydia, uh, a, a young slave girl who was demonized that he delivered. Um, you're going to hear about uh, Paul and Silas in jail. And as they sing, God comes and the glory breaks off the chains and shackles and the jailer is saved. We're going to get to all that in a minute. But all of that happens in the book of Acts chapter 16. Now, following Acts chapter 16, Paul vacates from Philippi. He plants the church, he establishes the people, but then he goes on to do other work. And so later in Paul's life, he is arrested again. He's arrested, you know, several times for preaching the gospel throughout his life. But Paul ends up in a prison in Rome. And as he's there awaiting to learn his fate, he didn't know whether he would die or whether he would be set free. Paul begins to pin these letters to different churches that he had planted on all of these missionary journeys and the people that he had encountered along the way. We call them Paul's prison epistles or the letters or the, um, the prison letters. 
And basically um, what Paul did is during his time, we, we think it was you know, two to four years uh, that he was in prison in Rome, Paul wrote four different letters to four different churches. He wrote to the church at Colossae, uh, the church at Galatia, the church at Philippi, and then he wrote a letter um, called the letter to Philemon, which was not really to a church, it was really to just one individual. And so as, as we approach all of this that we're going to talk about tonight, it's very, very important that you understand um, Paul's conversion, what he did following the conversion, his missionary journeys that he then planted this church in Philippi, but some of the things that he did while he was planting that church, we're going to talk about tonight, and then later he reestablished the connection with the church at Philippi through letters and, and different visits and stuff like that. And so um, that's just kind of a timeline to help you understand where we're headed. But the first question that we need to ask, and this is the most obvious question, is who is writing the letter to the Philippians? Well, obviously, we know it's the Apostle Paul. He has made it very clear in his writings. Uh, we've talked about it a little bit tonight. Um, Paul, Stephen Lawson, uh, speaking of Paul's character, his gifting, his ability, this is what he said. Paul was a dynamic missionary, a church planner, a powerful preacher, a caring pastor, a gifted evangelist, an astute theologian, a brilliant teacher, an itinerant speaker, and a prolific author. All of these things merged into one extraordinary person. Paul is all of these things that Dr. Lawson says that he is. He is gifted in all of these ways. He is supernaturally anointed beyond what most of us could probably fathom in our lifetimes. But the, re the, the reality is that Paul, by the time that he's writing to the Philippians, Paul is not so much focusing on all that he is, but instead he's focusing more on who Christ is, but also on who they are as the church at Philippi. Um, there are certain letters where, you know, Paul is, um, he's basically trying to convince uh, the readers, like for instance, uh, to the Galatians, Paul, as he opens up his letter, he's saying, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, not by man, as some people say, but by the authority of Jesus Christ. And all throughout like the first chapter in Galatians, you get this feeling that Paul's like trying to convince these people of who he is, of his, his powerful standing of, uh, you know, who that, that not a person has called him or empowered him, but that God Almighty himself has done this. But when we get to the letter to the Philippians, we don't see that type of attitude from Paul. As a matter of fact, Paul, when he introduces himself, he says, Paul and Timothy, he doesn't um, brag on any of his credentials, but he calls himself by a specific name. He says, I am a bondservant of Christ Jesus, our Lord. A bondservant with you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, this letter, it was written by Paul, but it was an incredibly personal, a very emotional letter that's penned by this powerful apostle. And what he's doing in his opening statement is he is in some way, it's not a false humility, but it's a humbling of himself. Regardless of his status in the church or his status in the known world, Paul says, regardless of all of that, because of who you are to me, 
this is how I'm presenting myself. I'm humbling myself as a bondservant because of the intimate nature of our relationship. You know how this is, right? Um, as an adult, uh, it's likely that you may have um, certain titles at your job or, you know, your career field or at your school or regardless, you know, your hobbies or whatever it may be. But they may call you one thing in that profession, um, but when you get home, you don't expect your husband to call you by that title. Right? There's a level of intimacy. So, so for me, I'm, I'm a pastor, okay? And out of honor, many people from the church call me Pastor Corey, and I, I, I'm big on honor, so I, I receive that and I, I honor that. But, but as I walk into my home, you know, little Aubrey, two-year-old Aubrey, doesn't come running saying, Pastor Corey, you know? Um, I, would, I would not be thrilled with that at all. Why? Because there is a level of intimate relationship that I have with my children that I don't have with anybody else. And so there are certain titles that are only reserved for my children. There are certain titles that I have with my wife that are reserved for her. Nobody else can call me babe or the hottest man who ever lived. Some of her nicknames for me. Nobody else can call me those things except for my wife, why? Because of the level of intimate relationship we have with one another. When Paul opens this letter, that's exactly what he's doing. He's saying, listen, church at Philippi, I love you to the level where I don't have to convince you of my status. I don't have to try to, you know, conjure you to believe what I'm saying. I know that you know me. And I know that I know you. And because of this, I'm going to address you in a certain way and you can address me in a, in, in a certain way. So, so Paul takes this incredibly humble approach as he begins to write this letter. Well, Paul secondly doesn't just add his name, but he then doubles and he says, it's not just me who's writing, but he attaches Timothy um, to this letter. Now, Timothy, most of us are familiar. Timothy is like Paul's young protege right? Uh, he's, um, uh, uh, Paul is, is acting as a mentor uh, to this young man. What we know about Timothy is that, you know, he was a younger man. We know that his faith was very rich, that his faith was inherited from his grandmother and then from his mother and then passed along to him. We, we realize that he was a very gifted um, uh, pastor. We'll learn later um, uh, throughout church history, but he became a very faithful partner with Paul. Paul basically adopted Timothy into his uh, missionary family, and they would travel as companions all around the world, all around the known world, and they would plant churches and do the work of the ministry. Timothy would ultimately become one of the pastors at one of the greatest churches that, that existed in that era, the church at Ephesus. And so uh, Paul was a, a mentor to this young man. Now, again, I, I said a little bit earlier, there, there's so much historical stuff that we can learn and appreciate, so much theology that's in the book of Philippians. But can I tell you, there is so much practical information that we can, that we can draw from this study. So for instance, even in this moment, as we see Paul is mentoring a young man, Timothy. Um, this is not just a side note. I mean, I guess we could read by and kind of blow past it without really understanding it. But the reality is this, is that throughout Paul's writings and throughout the writings of other scriptures, throughout the, the whole context of the entire Bible, there is a model of mentorship from one generation 
to the coming generations that is established and it's repeated over and over and over again. We see it from Moses to Joshua. We see it from Elijah to Elisha, Jesus to the disciples, Paul to Timothy, Paul to Silas, so on and so forth. We see this model of uh, of mentorship, of discipleship from older generations to younger generations. And so we take that and we say, well, what does that mean? You know, when we read the Bible, um, one of the questions ultimately we should get to is, well, what does this mean for my life? And the reality is this, is that um, I'm a firm believer that, that faith is transferred from generation to generation. And so I'm a big believer in mentorship. I'm a big believer, like for me, I have a threefold uh, type mentor um, you know, program kind of in my life. I'm a person that I believe there needs to be someone who is beyond me that is mentoring me. Someone who has walked the road that I want to walk, someone who has the character that I want to have, somebody who is beyond me, I want to have a person like that in my life. I secondly want to have people that are beside me, my, my friends that we kind of iron sharpen iron, like we are growing together. I'm learning from them, but they're learning from me. But perhaps one of the most important is I want to have someone who's behind me. I want to have someone who's younger. I want to have people that are coming behind so that I can transfer all that God has given me, all the information that I've learned, all the encounters with God, and I can transfer those stories, those experiences, those spiritual giftings from my generation to coming generations. This is the pattern not only we see in Scripture, but this is the pattern that we see in Paul's life. It's the biblical model. And so... Uh, we answer the question, who's writing the letter, by simply saying it's Paul and, and Timothy who are writing the letter, okay? The next question we want to answer is, well, when is the letter written, okay? Again, I think I may have already mentioned this. Um, Paul, um, again, he visits Philippi in Acts chapter 16, and all of these amazing events that we'll talk about in a moment transpire, and then Paul leaves Philippi for a number of years, okay? Like, like for 10 years, he's gone. And then when he's in prison 10 years later, this is when Paul is writing the letter. We believe it's around 60 AD, somewhere in that time frame. The third question we ask is, where is the letter written to? Okay, and this is where we get into a little bit of background historically. Number one in your notes, the letter is written to a town called Philippi. Okay, now I want to show you a photo of a map here. Um, Philippi is located in what, what we know as modern Greece, okay? Uh, right down here is Jerusalem, so this is all the Mediterranean. Um, over here is Rome, which was like the world capital of that day. And so, as you can see, Paul, you know, would begin his missionary journey somewhere on this part of the world, and he would end up in Philippi. Ultimately, he would end up at Rome, but he's done extensive traveling, uh, a lot of stuff like that. Uh, Philippi is named after Alexander the Great's father. He was called King Philip, and he established um, this city because there were mountains surrounding um, the city of Philippi, and in those mountains, there was a tremendous amount of gold and silver that was to be excavated. And so by, you know, the second, third centuries, most of the, the minerals there were already gone. But in the, you know, in the, in the hundred years leading up to Christ being born in the hundred years following, uh, this was a very wealthy place. 
and there were a lot of resources that people would go. And so Alexander the Great, being the conqueror that he is, he established this. He named it after his father. Now, Philippi is what we call a Roman colony, okay? Now, stay with me. I know some of this can get boring, okay, but it's important to understand this to really dig everything out of uh, the letter to the Philippians. Rome and the entire nation of Italy, basically, if, if you, because the Romans ruled the world for the most part at that point, if you lived anywhere in Italy, any city in Italy, you were what was considered a Roman colony. Okay, and basically what that means is that you got to take advantage of all the privileges and the perks that Rome got to take advantage of because you were in the same nation. Through the course of time, what began to happen as the Roman Empire began to grow and to expand, what began to happen is that uh, the leadership, they would begin to establish certain cities in different provinces all around, but they would call them not cities, they would call them colonies. And the colonies, basically, the basic understanding is this, is that Philippi, as a colony of Rome, took advantage of all the perks, all the privileges, all the benefits that the, the people in Rome actually got to experience. Uh, Philippi is actually, it was given, it was designated a title that's in Latin, I'm not going to try to pronounce, but it was designated with a title translated into English means just as Italy. And so basically what they were saying is that whatever you can do in Italy, whatever benefits and advantages that you have as a Roman citizen in Italy, if you live in Philippi, you get those same advantages. And so in Philippi, what you have is you have um, a small little um, Roman colony. I mean, there were only up to 15,000 people that lived there. We have churches in America that are bigger than that, okay? But there were only about 15,000 people that lived there, but they designated Philippi as little Rome. And so basically their architecture was designed just like it was in Rome. The leaders carried on councils just like they would at Rome. The citizens would walk around and they would, they would wear Roman attire and they would speak Latin. Most of the world would speak Greek at this point, but they felt far more advanced and so the Roman citizens would often speak Latin. And so basically what you have is you have this group of people that are in this city where they are experiencing all of the benefits of Rome. So for instance, um, they did not have to pay certain taxes that the Greeks would have to pay. Property taxes, certain personal taxes, political taxes, they were exempt from those things because they were a colony of Rome. It was almost like they were an island of Rome in a sea of Greek culture. Does that make sense? It's, it's almost like our idea of an embassy today. I love the, um, the Jason Bourne movies. You ever seen the Bourne movies? I love those. They're such great movies. Um, you know, in a, in a couple of those, in most of them, he's in another country somewhere, right? And inevitably what happens is that somebody's chasing him, and as he runs through the streets, what he's trying to find is a U.S. embassy, and basically, he will run into the embassy, and the guards will let him pass. But all of a sudden, when the bad guys show up, they step right in front of them. They will not let them pass into the embassy. Why? Because a U.S. embassy is basically U.S. territory. 
And the laws that apply outside that gate are not the same laws that apply within that gate. And the only people that can go in there are U.S. citizens and be able to take advantage of certain benefits and perks that people outside of that gate can't. That's exactly what we're talking about with the colony of Philippi. So they were, um, they were big on their citizenship. They, they boasted. You even see in the book of Acts, there's one point where um, uh, Paul is uh, in a contention with some Roman people, and, and they flat out just call them out. And they say, they're trying to do this and this and these traditions and these sayings, but we are Romans. And they're making a statement about their citizenship, that they are the most powerful people on the planet, and they don't have to fold to anybody. That is the type of people that you find at Philippi. And so Paul, we'll see in a few weeks, Paul, at some point, he capitalizes on this idea of their citizenship because all of the people, you know, uh, Paul himself was a Roman citizen. Uh, he had dual citizenship, but uh, the people were, were so obsessed with their citizenship because of all the benefits and the prestige and the power that it brought to them that it was easy for them to, to slide their identity away from being in Christ into being more of a Roman citizen. And so this is why, again, in a few weeks, we'll hit this, but in Philippians 3.20, this is what Paul says. He says, people who were of this world, and he starts going through all the things that they focus on, all the negative, all the things that they pride themselves in. This is what he says. He says, their mind is set on earthly things. Listen to what he says. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. So he's saying, listen to me, church of Philippi, I know how powerful you must feel. And I know the prestigious advantages that you have uh, over all other people. But baby, don't set your eyes on the things of this world. Because you may be a citizen here in Rome on this earth, but you're not a citizen of Rome there. You're a citizen of heaven. And we need to live as citizens of heaven, not just as citizens of Rome. And so uh, Paul is writing to the the you know, this place of Philippi, um, which basically, you know, again, not, not very many people, 15,000 people, um, but it was a very strategic location. So when Rome would set up these colonies, and in the beginning years, they didn't do that a lot. I mean, it wasn't, you know, like every city can become this. It was a very prestigious opportunity. But as they began to do it, what they would do is they would send groups of retired military soldiers and their families. Sometimes they, they would really strive to, to get pockets of at least 300 men and their families that were retired military, and they would ship them over to these colonies um, to live out the rest of their days. Now, what that did for like Philippi, when the, when the men would come over with their families is, well, number one, in military, you're gonna have hardworking, responsible people. But number two, you're also gonna have a militaristic mindset. So for Rome, it wasn't just about expansion, it was about strategic expansion. How can we build colonies that won't fold the first time another army tries to come against them? Well, we're going to take our men who are equipped in war, and we're going to let them plant these colonies and be the defenders of them. And so Rome, uh, for all of its crazy and brokenness, okay, related to the world, was an incredibly brilliant empire um, in, in its, its heyday, I would say. And so, so this, is the, this is the type of people, this is the type of mindset that Paul is writing to but more specifically, Paul is writing to the Christians at Philippi. 
So he's not writing to the generals or, you know, the, the, you know, the, the marketplace people. He's writing to the church, to a group of people that are there, the church at Philippi. And so when he opens, he says, this is to, uh, and there are different translations, but he says, the people of God in Christ at Philippi. Um, the most accurate translation, he says, is this is to the saints at Philippi. And I love that word saints. It is a very... Um, it is a very unique word that means those who were holy ones, those who were set apart for the kingdom of God, uh, almost the idea of those who were sanctified for Christ Jesus. And so he uses this word. I remember I had a mentor when, when I was uh, a lot younger. And uh, when he would write me a card or, you know, we would have a phone call or we'd meet in person or whatever, he would always call me St. Corey. And I thought that was so bizarre. I was like, dude, it's like, you know, we're in the 2000s. Stop, okay? Um, but one day I asked him about that. I said, why do you call everybody saint? And he said, well, he said, number one, I know what saint means. And I'm a big believer that if I can call someone by their highest potential, that maybe they'll rise to it. And so from then on out, I said, well, call me St. Corey then, you know? Um, and so, so Paul, this is how he's addressing his precious church family here in Philippi. It's filled with, with love language. He talks about how they are his, his crown and his joy of all the ministry work that he has done. They are like the pinnacle of it. And so Paul has this incredibly intimate relationship with the people at Philippi. But now what I want to do is I want to go back to Acts chapter 16 and I want to help you understand why the people revere and love Paul so much and why Paul loves them so deeply, okay? So in Acts chapter 16, when Paul receives the vision of the man from Macedonia, he goes and he enters Philippi and he's looking for this man. Where is this guy at? I got to find him. He doesn't find him. The Bible says that he goes to enter the synagogue at Philippi, but because Philippi at that point was so small, there weren't enough Jews that populated Philippi that they didn't even have a synagogue. And so oftentimes, if you didn't have a synagogue, oftentimes what Jewish people or religious people, spiritual people would do is they would go down to a river on a set day of the week and they would conduct their own type of worship services. And so Paul goes down to the river and he finds this woman named Lydia. She is a, um, uh, you know, she's a businesswoman, we would say in today's vernacular, but Paul preaches the gospel. God opens her heart. She's born again. She becomes a devout follower of Christ. And so Paul begins to do his ministry throughout Philippi preaching the gospel, this young slave girl finds Paul possessed by a devil. And she begins to follow Paul. You've read the story. And she begins to mock Paul and keep jawing for days on end. And the Bible says at a certain point, Paul just had it. He looks at her. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of that girl. The demon is rebuked. The girl becomes sane and normal. She gives her life to Christ, begins to follow Paul. The problem is, is that the owner of this slave girl is losing all this money because the enemy had gifted her with divination. So she could like foretell certain events of future, different things like that. With the demon gone, she can no longer do that. So her employer was losing business. So he causes a ruckus. How many of you know if you really want to frustrate someone who is not in Christ, mess with their money, okay? Or many of those in Christ, okay? Mess with their money. That's exactly what happens. So the slave girl's owner goes, he causes a ruckus. The Bible says there was like a riot in the streets. They beat Paul and Silas. They throw them in prison. And as they are in prison, this is when the Bible says, and at about midnight, 
they began to sing hymns to the Lord. And as they began to sing, the other prisoners quieted, and they listened to these voices being lifted to heaven. And then all of a sudden, the power of God fell, and every door in the prison was flung open. Every shackle for Paul and Silas and all the prisoners was broken. And prisoners began to flee, and they began to run. The jailer who was overseeing all the prisoners that night, knowing that the next day when dawn appeared, that he would lose his life because he had lost the prisoners. The Bible says that he drew his sword and he was going to fall on his sword to take his own life before the Roman authorities could take it for him. The Bible says that Paul and Silas stopped him and they helped him understand what had just happened. And the power of the resurrected Christ and the gospel of Jesus that could save not only this life, but his eternal life. And the jailer becomes a Christian in that moment. These are the events that begin to happen where God is establishing in this fortified colony of Rome, God is birthing a church through a series of these ministry moments, these incredible ministry moments, where it's not only the individuals whose lives are going to be changed, but anybody who knows them, anybody who sees what's going on, they're going to become full aware of the power of God and how he's moving and what he's doing in that moment. And a beautiful thing happens with these three situations. Beautiful thing happens. Number one, God in Philippi is establishing his um, multi, you could call it multi-ethnic kingdom in this moment, okay? So understand this. Um, Lydia was a woman from Asia Minor. She was, she was, would have been considered a, a woman who is Asian. She gives her life to Christ and becomes a part of the church. The Roman jailer is a Roman. And so he gives his life to Christ and becomes part of the church. The young slave girl is a Greek. And she sees the power of God, gives her life to Christ, and becomes a part of this church in this small area of Philippi. What God is doing through this series of events is he is not only establishing his kingdom, but the truest version of his kingdom that sees no boundaries across ethnic lines. And not only across ethnic lines, but economic lines. If you think about this woman, Lydia, when you really dig in and find out who Lydia was, Lydia was a wealthy businesswoman. And so in our vernacular, she would have been considered high class. The Roman jailer probably would have been considered, you know, middle-class American in, in our day. But this slave girl would not even have been considered any type of citizen. She would have been a nobody and a nothing. And so in these three moments, God isn't just trying to establish his kingdom, but his multi-ethnic kingdom and his multi-socioeconomic kingdom where he's basically opening the door saying, listen, it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what you earn. It doesn't matter what you do. The floodgates are open for anybody and everybody who would come to Jesus. The gates are open. That's what God is doing in these three events in Philippi. And so as he begins to do all this stuff, the kingdom of God grows, and then Paul goes on, and he, you know, ultimately he's arrested. And then at that point, after he's arrested, after all of these events, only then does he begin to write the letter to the church at Philippi. This, my friends, helps us understand better why Paul had such affection for these people. His life was on the verge 
of being snuffed out multiple times throughout his stay at Philippi. The people that he saw delivered and saved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light were so profound. He stopped a man from committing suicide that his life would be glorious. He delivered a demoniac young girl so that her life could be lived to the fullest. And so as Paul is going through all this, you can better understand why Paul has such affection for these people, why Paul is enjoying writing this letter, why the people, when they receive it, they are just so filled with so much love and appreciation. These are the reasons why uh, the affection is there. Number four in your notes, why is the letter written? Okay, so... What, where we are now is we're at the place where Paul is in prison in Rome and he's writing the letter to the Philippians and the Colossians, so on and so forth. He's pinning all these letters because he's in jail for a number of years. Well, the church at Philippi, the scripture says, has funded Paul throughout his missionary journeys multiple times. But as Paul is in Rome and he's writing this letter, basically what has happened is that a man has come to him from Philippi. From, can I have the map again real quick? I'm sorry. Um, he has come from Philippi, which is right over here in Greece. He has traveled halfway across the known world at that point to this place in Rome with a financial contribution for Paul. See, in, in Roman prisons, in most prisons, uh, not only there, but even in our modern world, um, most prisons in third world countries don't provide you with the amenities that our prison system in the United States provides people with. You don't get three square meals a day. You don't get exercise time. You don't get to see, you know, conjugal visits. And all, you, none of that stuff. You don't get any of that stuff. And so basically, as Paul is sitting in Rome, um, you know, they're not, they're not even really feeding him. He may have scraps. They may, you know, give the prisoners water. But Paul is, you know, potentially, if he doesn't catch a, you know, a virus and die from it, he could potentially starve to death. And so uh, many of the prisoners that were there for years and years, they were only able to, to stay alive by the generosity of other people outside the prison. And so knowing this, the church at Philippi, remembering Paul's faithfulness and his love for them, they, they send this man over to Rome and they bring this beautiful financial contribution to Paul so that he can eat food. And the book of Philippians or the letter to the Philippians, listen to me, it is simply a response of that financial gift. That's all that it is. A man traveled halfway across the known world to bring a financial gift. And in Paul's gratitude, when he sends the man back to Philippi, he sends him with this letter. And that is why we have the book of Philippians today. So this is 10 years after Paul has left Philippi. So he hasn't potentially seen these people in Philippi for the last 10 years. But these are people that have continuously supported Paul throughout most of his ministerial life. And what we learn throughout church history is that the church in Philippi wasn't just generous to Paul, but their generosity carried on from generation to generation afterwards. We read of uh, uh, St. Um, uh, Ignatius, and just before he is sent to Rome to be martyred, um, on his way to Rome, uh, he writes a letter to the church at Philippi. He, he's familiar with these people. And what we learn from his writings, now he was born at least one generation, if not two generations after Paul. And what we learn is that they were continuing to send financial uh, uh, gifts 
to the men of God and the women of God that were building the church around the world. It was an incredible, I mean, it was like the first missions banquet. People were just overwhelmed with all that God was doing, so they were just sending all these gifts. But my point remains the same, that our faith is transferred from generation to generation. And the church at Philippi, they were not settled enough just to support Paul in his missionary journeys, but they expanded that from generation and they taught their children to do the same thing and the same thing and so on and so forth. Such a reminder for us that our children will repeat our practices. I'm not talking about necessarily our hobbies, you know. Um, your children may root for the same football team that you root for, okay, or they may not. That's a hobby. That doesn't really matter. I, I love hunting, but none of my kids enjoy hunting. That doesn't bother me whatsoever. Um, but I'll tell you what would bother me. It would bother me if my characteristics were not transferred from me to my children. If my children chose to be stingy with their finances, that would frustrate me. If my children chose to be rude to strangers, that would really be troublesome for me. So, so it's, a, it's a testament and a good reminder for us as parents, as grandparents, as aunts and uncles, that how we live our life will be transferred one way or another. It will be transferred. Some of our characteristics will be transferred from one generation to the next. And thank God, man, for the history and the, 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 um, the example for the church at Philippi. Number five in your notes, um, as we begin to wrap up here, what is the letter about? Now, uh, you've read... Um, you know, certain letters like to the, to the church at Corinth, Paul wrote, and so much of some of Paul's letters were correction, right? They're just like, you're not doing this right. The gifts of the spirit are out of control. You got to bring structure. Uh, you know, you're sleeping with people. Stop it. I mean, it's just constantly correcting people in different things. Uh, to the church uh, at Galatia, he's talking to them about, listen, you've, you've, you've forsaken grace. Now you slid back into to a works mentality. Stop that. It's only by the grace of Christ. Um, so, so many of Paul's correspondences are correction or their instruction or their do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. But what we find in the letter to the church at Philippi is that it, there's no correction in it. More than anything, it's a letter of affirming who they are, of encouraging them to fight the good fight, of, of pushing them towards right living and right doing thinking, but it's not corrective in any stretch of the imagination. It's very affirming, it's very loving. And in this book, we, we traditionally find three major themes really quickly. Number one, the first theme that we find is rejoicing. 17 times in this epistle, the, uh, the Greek word for rejoice or rejoicing is found. It's, it's very woven through these four chapters. Number two, the second thing that we find is the gospel. Nine different times Paul talks about the gospel. He says, listen, uh, you need to live a life that's worthy of the gospel. Uh, he talks about the confirmation of the gospel. He talks about the defense of the gospel, loyalty to the gospel, all of these different things. Um, over and over and over again, you see this theme. But the, but the most predominant theme that we find in the book of Philippians is the theme of joy. Now, when we talk about joy, it can be a difficult thing to define. Right? I think a few weeks ago, Pastor talked about the differences between happiness and joy. And neither of them are bad, but the understanding is that joy is kind of temporal. It, it, it can come and go based upon the circumstance or situation, but an abiding joy is not shaken by anything that's going around. 
It's not moved by the spider on the wall. It's, it's solid. It's secure. John MacArthur said this. He said, biblical joy, the settled conviction that God sovereignly controls the events of life for believer's good and for God's glory is available to all who obey him. And so this idea of Paul saying, listen, guys, listen, I know that I'm in prison, but I want you to think of it this way. Me being in prison has been a furtherance of the gospel. Because of my imprisonment, do you realize that people in Caesar's household have heard the gospel? They, they never would have heard the gospel otherwise, but because I'm in prison, listen, so I count it all joy. This is an amazing opportunity for me. So you see this time and time again that Paul refuses to camp out in all the frustration and all the things that have happened to him, and he chooses to set his attention on the things of heaven. Listen to what he says later on in Philippians 4, and we'll have an entire night dedicated to this, but this is what he says. He says, and now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. Now let me remind you really quickly of who is writing these words. This is the apostle, the Bible tells us, that five different times, on five different occasions, he is whipped 39 times, five different occasions. He's a man that was stoned. Most people believe that Paul was stoned to death, and then God resurrected or, or resuscitated his body. This is the man who was beaten with rods on three different occasions. This is the man who traveled great distances. He said, listen, he said, I, my life has been in danger from rivers and robbers, from Jews, from Gentiles, for people who were, they say that they're Christians, but they're not really Christians. Animals in the wilderness, animals in the sea, water trying to drown me, sleepless nights. I've been cold. I've been hot. I've been exposed. I've been hungry. I've been thirsty. All of these things physically have been pressing in on me, and that's not even considered the internal stress and the internal anxiety anxiety and the spiritual burden of caring for all of these churches across the world and my call as an apostle. All of these things crashing in and Paul says, listen, let me remind you of one thing. Don't focus on all that. Set your focus on the things of heaven. Those things that are pure, those things that are lovely, those things that are excellent and worthy of praise. And when you do that, the peace of God will fill your soul. Listen to me. We use, we use the, the scripture Philippians 14 out of context so, so drastically in our culture. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do you know what he's talking about? <laughs> he's not talking about a bad day at work. He's talking about this. He's saying, listen, all of this stuff, I can do, I can persevere through anything but I got to train myself to focus on the, what God has called me to, who I am in Christ, the things that are good, not just the things that surround me. And when I do that, I can survive all of these things. 
because of the strength that Christ gives me when I obey. So the book of Philippians, that's in a nutshell, this is what the book of Philippians is about. Paul's asking the question, what are you going to give your attention to? And as a result, how are you going to live your life? Is a reflection of what I think followed by a reflection of what I do? Paul urges them, he says, no, 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 listen, you focus on this, don't focus on that, and you'll have the endurance to make it. You'll have the endurance to last. And he points to himself as an example. An incredible, incredible book. I'm so incredibly excited to be able to share over the next, like I said, it'll take us several months to get through um, um, all of it, but I'm incredibly excited about what we're going to do.